You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hey, Bob, how are you? Hello, Daniel. How are you? Good. It seems like uh, I just saw you yesterday. Oh, wait, I did just see you yesterday. You saw me yesterday in New York. <laughs> uh, for for the viewers of the so in the Sophia audience, uh, I finally got to meet Bob for the first time in person. Lucky and I have you. to say, he's even more interesting and impressive in person. And charismatic. He's, I had no idea that you were so tall and formidable uh, in your in your physical affect. Yeah, well, it did it did get a little physical. It did. There were fisticuffs when you when you were wrong about something, and, and there was no. You were not amenable to logical argument. So I guess um, today we're going to finish our discussion on Hume. And we left to today the stuff uh, that's on reason and the passions, which for Hume connects directly to uh, ethics. Um, and there may be other things that you want to talk about having to do with Hume's theory of the self and so on and so forth. And you may want to, you may want to make some connections that interest you. So why don't we just start? Why don't we do it the same way we did last time? Why don't you... Uh, Ask me some questions and we'll get into a conversation. Yeah, I, you know, not being a philosopher, I know fairly little about Hume, but I am a fan based on what I know. Um, and we talked a little last time about how just clear he is uh, in his writing and I think in his reasoning and how uh, how nice that is. But I, there are a couple of specific uh, positions that uh, that I'm very drawn to of his. Okay. And one, uh, and I think we might as well start out with this, and we'll probably spend much of the conversation on it. It's very, it's very famous. It's as you said, it's about the reasons and the passions. We should say that passions isn't meant exactly the way it's meant today. With you know, with passions today, you think of we mainly think of sexual passion, probably. Yeah. He, he meant the emotions broadly, and I would say even further, he meant affect, affective responses to things generically. That's exactly right. Yeah, And so when he says in this famous sentence, he says, he's talking about the relationship between reason and, aff between cognition, you know, what is sometimes called cognition and affect, between reason and, and, and feelings or emotions. He says, reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions and can never pretend to any other office than to serve and obey them. He's a great writer. He's a great writer. Yes. The, the uh, <laughs> But 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 one interesting thing here is he's saying two different things. He's saying reason is the slave of the of, of feelings. Uh, it serves them, and he's saying and ought only to be. And I honestly <clears throat> don't understand the ought only to be part. I don't understand what he's trying to get across here. And I'm going to turn to you later for enlightenment on that point. Okay. I, I, as for the descriptive part, reason is the slave of the passions. I think that's very consistent with what is coming out of modern psychology generally, in terms of even actual brain scan studies showing how closely affect and cognition are intertwined. But, but this is also very consistent with evolutionary psychology, just in a kind of a theoretical sense almost. Um, it's also consistent, I should say, with my own introspection, especially when I do things like meditate. Um, and this, like, this is not the only thing that I think uh, is a little bit... Uh, Buddhist of, of Hume. There's been a lot of discussion, maybe we'll have time to get to this, about how his skepticism about the existence of the self is very Buddhist. But that's a separate matter. So, um, 
you know, I think uh, his point is that, like, when it comes to actually motivating behavior, I think this is his point, there's got to be feelings involved, and in a way it boils down to feelings. So, like, you imagine anything that you're employing reason to do. Like, say I'm researching some purchase. Like, I decide I want a... I need a new down jacket. Um, I research it online. I come to a conclusion. I think Hume would say that, first of all, the chain, the, the, the reasoning begins in feeling because wanting a jacket is a feeling. It, now, it may in turn be informed by reason. You may reflect on the fact that you got colder than you'd like to be, but of course, being cold is than you're cold than you'd like to be is a feeling. In any event, the, the desire to purchase something is a feeling that triggers a chain of research and reasoning, but then when you ultimately, the, desi- the desire to buy a specific coat is also a feeling, and it has been, in- it, sure, it has been informed by reason, so, so, so th- th- this little bit of reasoning has its beginning and its end in feeling, and at the end of the day, it's feeling that, uh, that motivates you to buy a jacket. So feeling tells reason what to think about, what research to do. And then in the end, I'm not sure Hume emphasized both of these things. I think modern psychology would emphasize both of these. And there are even interesting brain scan studies about uh, purchasing decisions. They do the brain scans on people, and they find they can predict pretty well what they're going to buy by just looking at the affective parts of the brain, you know, whether they're, they're the, 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 the kind of approach and avoidance parts of the brain, you might say. Um, so anyway, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how much emphasis Hume puts on these two aspects, the, the fact that, that feelings tell you what to reason about, and then at the other end, that the reelings are kind of the reasoning is kind of cashed out in the way of feeling, which then finally motivates the behavior. But uh, so, but I would say it's very consistent with modern psychology, and I, I can elaborate later uh, maybe on why I say it's this is very much a, an evolutionarily psychological view as well. It's very consistent with modern ev psych in a theoretical sense. But but first, why don't you uh, react to what I've said? Um, so. <sighs> The stuff about reason and the passions um, actually comes out of out of um, um, is is bundled together with other elements in which Hume is criticizing kind of rationalist morality um, or reason based morality, um, and so because we're going to discuss these separately and you haven't mentioned morality yet, I'm just going to separate this part of the, of the mm-hmm. critique out. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons why he thinks that, that, um, that uh, 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 rationalist or reason-based morality is faulty is precisely because reason he thinks doesn't move anything. Right. Um, and um, all that reason can do is, is lead to a belief that such and such is the case. Right. right? So the example that you gave with the code is a perfect example. Right. So I might, um, on the basis of a scientific investigation, find out that a human being's body temperature needs to be kept at a certain uh, at a certain uh, uh, temperature. um, And that, therefore, if the external temperature falls below a certain point, then a human being, as a matter of fact, um, needs a coat. Right. But 
unless I care about remaining warm or even about surviving, that belief in by itself is not going to lead me to do anything, right? It's causally inert in the sense of, uh, and, and Hume thinks this about all matters of what he calls the understanding. That which belongs to the understanding um, um, has to do with what is true and false, right? But it does not, in and of itself, move us to do anything. Right. Now, the way this connects to ethics is because ethics, Hume thinks, is a fundamentally practical discipline. At the end of the day, it's supposed to be about why we do things, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and, and about wanting one thing to happen. Right, that's right. That's, that's what right. prescription is. That's when right. you say that's you right. should do this. That's right. And it's worth mentioning that, you know, Kant, who is very much a rationalist about morality, who very much thinks that morality uh, is a result of reason, is the product of reason, has a notoriously terribly difficult time explaining why anyone should be moral. Right, um, um, Kant can tell, give you the categorical imperative, um, but as uh, Philippa Foote pointed out in a very famous paper called "Morality as a System of Hypothetical Imperatives," she said, "Unless one cared about being moral, there's no reason to follow the categorical imperative. In other words, it doesn't carry within it its own force. Right? All the force, all the normative force, comes from the emotions, from right. caring about these things, from things mattering to you. Right?" Right. Um, and so I, I think, you know, this is this is Hume's primary point here. And let me just say one last thing about it. In this sense, Hume, like a number of other modern philosophers, has a much narrower conception of reason than the ancient Greeks did. The ancient Greeks thought that reason was the much larger thing. It wasn't simply a calculating or an investigative modality it was a way to sort of, it was a modality by which one could apprehend not just the ultimate nature of things, but the ultimate good of things. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so um, um, an ancient philosopher would never accept the separation, of the, of, of, of the separation between reason and emotion the way that Hume does. Um, but that's simply a result of Hume being so influenced by the modern scientific revolution, right? And by and by and by and by uh, and by a picture of of the world in which reason has a much smaller and more instrument and more purely instrumental role uh, in our lives. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, yeah. So so let's do turn to the ethics. Let me first say one more thing about why. Hume's view makes sense descriptively, just as a description of human psychology and the way things actually work. It's just that, so far as we can tell, I mean, of course, we can't say for sure that anybody other than, well, I can't say for sure that any being other than me has feelings, you know, uh, strictly speaking. Uh, I can't be anybody else, but we're all pretty sure other people have feelings. And in fact, we all most of us believe that other animals have feelings. It's probably easiest to believe that about other primates, but if you have dogs, you're pretty sure they have feelings and so on. Seems like a good bet that feelings have been with us for a long time in evolution. And what that suggests is that feelings came first, right? I mean, you know, some people would say that feelings go all the way back to the very beginning. So if you see like a, a, a primordial bacterium that is drawn to certain things like sources of nutrition and 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 shows an aversive uh, behavior toward things like toxins 
you know, for all we know, some very elementary feeling is associated uh, with those. But in any event, we know that we have good reason to believe that as a general matter, feelings come in two broad varieties, uh, you know, attraction and aversion, right? Like there's positive feelings and negative feelings, and we feel positive feelings toward those things that natural selection wanted us to be drawn to, like food and sex and uh, social esteem, you know, we... And we want, and we feel aversion toward things that natural selection wanted us to like avoid, like right. poisonous snakes, people who are going to kill us, and so on. Right. So the, the 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 best guess is: look, long before there was anything like human reason in the animal kingdom, there were feelings. So they they came first as the guides to behavior, and the cognition, in the sense of reasoning is a pretty recent add-on. And and the only reason it would get added on from a Darwinian point of view of, is if it served the interests that, that were already reflected in the feelings themselves, right? I mean, there's a value system implied in the feelings. It's natural selection's value system. It's like this, this, and this are good. Approach them. This, this, and this are bad. Or approach them or get more of them or try to, you know, for, you know pave the way to get them down the road or something. So there's a values system there and that, you know, people operate, you know, animals operate under. Squirrels think nuts are good. Uh, they think my dogs are bad because my dogs qu- uh, chase squirrels and they presumably have those feelings. Uh, so if reason comes late it, it, and, it, and it's a product of natural selection, then it stands to reason it too is going to serve natural selection's value system. And so it is going to be kind of an instrument that is ultimately in the service of those feelings that were already there reflecting that value system. And so there's just this theoretical sense in which what Hume is saying makes sense, right? So Hume, yeah, well, reason, I can't, yeah, I can't say right only because I'm not a fan of Psych. and I, I, I think it's reduc- I think it's excessively reductive, and I and I think it, you know we've discussed this before. There's no need to rehash it. Um, as for what Hume would think of it, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he would be an enthusiast only because he was very much an enthusiast for the science of his day. Mm-hmm. Um, and he very much had the ambition to sort of advance uh, a, a purely natural, a, a very thoroughly naturalistic account of human nature, of human behavior. Um, and so I'm sure he would be very, probably much more interested in, in contemporary F psych than I would be. I mean, this is where my, my orientation goes much more uh, Wittgenstein and much less, uh, which is, tends to be more behavioristic um, and, less, uh, and, less, and less in this direction. But, um, but nothing, let's put it this way, I mean, nothing that you've said in any way is inconsistent with what he says. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but whether, you know, whether, whether, you know, what I feel about it, stuff, I, you know, obviously I, I you know, I, I get off the bus once we get to the Ev psych. With regard to stuff like this, I get I get off the bus, um, but um, uh, you know maybe in fifty years when it's more developed, I might change my mind if I'm still alive. Um, but right now, a lot of it strikes me as sounding a lot like just so stories um, that um, that uh, I'm always in, immediately suspicious of the minute I hear them. Um, but um, but that's not I'm I'm not meaning to start a com- an argument yeah. about that because I don't want it to derail us. I, I refer anyone tempted to agree with you to. Well, let's see. Which book in, about evolutionary psychology should I... Oh, how about the one I wrote, The Moral Animal? Um, <laughs> for my own view on this. But, uh, I mean, it's an old book now, but but the basic ideas are still at the center of evolutionary psychology. Um, so, uh, 
the yeah, that is another conversation. But uh, the point is, just this is another reason Hume Hume uh, you find him interesting, and 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 and, it make, and and the descriptive part makes sense to, to me. Now, as for the prescriptive part, I mean, first of all, there's a little bit of uh, irony in this phrase. Reason is and ought only to be, because. If it seems there that he's inferring from the fact that it is that it ought to be, well, it can't be that because he's famous in another context for distinguishing right. between ought and is and saying you can't infer ought which from we'll is. Get, which we'll get to, yeah. Yeah, and which, by the way, is a source of resistance to evolutionary psychology, you say. In fact, I have a little story about this that so perfectly illustrates the problem. When The Moral Animal was published, this is like in the 1990s, uh, it was excerpted on the cover of Time magazine, which back in those days you know, was a great break. Right. And, but, but you know, you couldn't pick the wording on the cover of Time magazine. If it's going to go out to there at that point, God knows how many millions of people, they get to decide right. the angle. And, and the piece was about kind of the, uh, you know, why monogamy was, is difficult. That's what it was. It was like lifelong monogamy is not natural, and, and this is why it's hard and love right. fades and so on. And the way they boiled that down on the cover was there was an image of a, a broken wedding ring and it said, infidelity, it may be in our genes. And, you know, in some sense that's true, although I didn't mean that unfaithful people are the ones who have the infidelity gene and the rest of us don't. I didn't mean that. I mean, it's in everyone's genes and, and so on. So anyway, but anyway, I would go on the road. I went to this one talk show in uh, Seattle where they had this whole audience assembled. It was one of these Oprah-type settings, except it was a local show. Live audience. And, like, the producer comes in and the host is in there. We're just talking right before about what we're going to talk about. And it suddenly becomes evident to them that I don't believe infidelity is a good thing. They had inferred from right. the fact that I think it is the case that people are inclined right. to, to infidelity that, that we ought to commit infidelity. So right. this is exactly what Hume warns against. These guys were totally freaked out. They're like, well, you know, I mean, we're, we're five minutes from showtime. They're like, look. First, let me say, the last thing I'd ask you to do is misrepresent your views on TV. However, if it took a while for the effort to become clear that you actually don't believe infidelity is a good thing, that would really be really nice from our point of view. So anyway, uh, this Wait, is, they were hoping that you would think it was a good thing. Of course, they so because be, they so had brought be, you, so no, you know radical, why. So it'd be a radical thesis. Sort no, of? because they had brought somebody on to debate that with me. There was <laughs> there was like a Christian moralist oh, who was no. going to explain to me why infidelity <laughs> is not good. Oh, that's brilliant! Oh, that's brilliant! So anyway, this is the life of the evolutionary psychologist. One of the main forms of uh, uh, sources of uh, resistance. I'm not saying this is the, yeah. in, in your case, but yeah. is that is exactly no, no, that's the, not that's not my basis, of right? Resistance. Yeah, but, but yeah. it's exactly what Hume warned against: the yeah. natural, you know, the, what's come to be called the naturalistic fallacy, inferring ought from it. So he clearly doesn't mean that when he says reason is and only and ought only to be the slave of the passions. Uh, but he, I guess he sees some kind of connection. And this is the part where maybe you can help me out. Um, yeah, I don't, I think, you know, I think you don't want to take that too literally. I think what he's doing there is sort of, sort of, what he's telling you is that you oughtn't think of reason in the, in the, in the, in the, in the older way, right? You oughtn't think of reason in the way that Plato and, and and Augustine and and others thought of uh, thought of it that you that you ought to understand that reason is a very a, a relatively narrow faculty, um, um, and that it does not have the kind of preeminence you know because 
you got to remember from from antiquity all the way up until the Enlightenment, the notion that man is defined as a rational animal is in, firmly entrenched in the Western tradition, mm-hmm. and also even gets bound up with the the, the Christianization of 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 uh, ancient of ancient Greek philosophy, and so this is a very powerful paradigm, and even a lot of the thinkers of the Enlightenment believe it. So Hume, in this sense, is really quite radical. Um, as a matter of fact, in that sense, he's really the only anti-rationalist when it comes to this level of rationalism uh, in the Enlightenment. That is, believing that reason really can can not only determine, can not only sort of, in a sense, um, uh, function as an instrument, um, but as a way of determining our ends, right? Mm-hmm. Of determining what our ends are, um, um, and thus what we should do and what we should be. Um, um, and so I think, I think when you read that, really all that he's saying is that this is what reason is, right? Um, and it's all that it ever was. Right? Yeah. And so you really, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta shed off, you ought to throw off this myth that philosophers have been peddling for, for now millennia. Right. Suggesting that it's anything more. So, yeah. So it's like calculative faculty. Right? He, so, so he's saying, Ethical philosophy, ethics by its nature, involves preference. It involves wanting one thing to be the case rather than another. And you know, maybe maybe this is related. You said that 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 Kant was trying to come up with a purely rational That's right. ethics. And one thing about Kant, okay, so the categorical imperative to oversimplify it a bit, the basic idea is like do unto others as you would have them do under you, or do unto others as you would have everyone do to everyone, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's not quite right. Yeah. I know. I said oversimplify, but but let me. But this is the point I want to make is that. If you read, you just read Kant, at least in the kind of cursory way that I did once, and it it has some of the feeling of what's called a consequentialist argument. And a, and a consequentialist ethics is where you judge the ethical principle by what the consequences are. So utilitarianism is consequentialist because you want to maximize happiness or whatever. And, of course, that is not purely reasonable because it begins with a preference. You 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 want happiness for people. I mean, you, you're Although positive. Mill, Mill would not argue for it that way, though. Well, Mill made the case yeah. that happiness is the intrinsic good, and he makes a rational case yeah. for that. Well, I've kind of made he that does case. Not, he does not give an emotive sort of argument. Well, although uh, it, it, part of his argument, as I recall, is... Look, it's what everybody wants, right? I mean, it's like right, and, and right, that's right, a, he, right. he, he. So he's citing a preference. He's citing an affective preference, um, and and anyway, it's I, I have I have myself tried to well anyway, but 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 the main thing I want to say is this is like Kant defend you know Kant scholars will generally say. No, it sounds like a consequentialist argument to you, but at least some of them will will argue that no, that's a misunderstanding. It's not consequentialist. It but, is a but, misunderstanding. Uh, okay, it may be, but I think the reason I suspect the reason that it seems so consequentialist is because Kant is wrestling, and Hume would say futilely, you know, with the challenge of uh, coming up with a with an ethics that is purely reasonable, and in my view purely reason-based, and in my view, a consequentialist ethics would not be, because it ultimately begins with a, right. a value judgment, a preference. Right. I mean, l- let me just say one thing about Kant. I mean, one thing you have to remember is that 
the formulation of the categorical imperative that you gave, it's called the humanity formula. And actually, strictly speaking, what it says is, one always tr ought, ought to treat others as an ends rather than as a means to an end. Um, it does not say treat others that that's the golden rule. <laughs> um, but wait, there's a formulation of it even by him that's close, that sounds more like right. the golden but, rule. But the two most important formulations are the first two. And the first one is act only in such a way that you can will the maximum of your action to be a universal law. That's the one I meant, yes. And the whole point is supposed to be that all the other formulations are derivable from the first. Now, I okay, couldn't... Okay, but where does the first come if from? you asked me to do it, I couldn't, right? But I know people that can. I mean, I, people who are... No but, no, but my question is, where does that first principle come from? Oh, the is the first one about the ends and the means? Or which no, one? the first one is about universalizability of maxims. That's my question is, where does that... I think that's the one he can't get to. Uh, that's the one that comes from all of his... All the stuff that, that's in the bulk of the groundwork right. about, um, about the... Really, what Kant thinks is that obligation, that, that duty is a condition of rational personhood. Uh -huh. um, and this is tied in with his political liberalism. I mean, this is one of the most powerful uh, arguments on behalf of political liberalism. And that is, you know, one of the things about political liberalism is why do people have intrinsic value, right? Because the whole idea of political liberalism is that the individual is sacrosanct in some sense. And Kant gives a very compelling uh, idea, and that is that that we are the makers of value because because value is part of the condition of rational personhood right and so as the we are all creators of value and we are us thus all equally creators of value and thus uh our, our inherent dignity uh uh is manifest uh and ought to be respected by in our actions and in our institutions um Kant thinks he also has a very there's also a very strong component of uh, agency in this Right? So the reason why Kant wants to eschew any appeal to the emotions or the passions or even desires in the account of morals is because he thinks that, that when we act under the, under, under the influence of the passions, we're acting under the influence of nature, not under the influence of our own will. Right? We're actually not act he thinks we're acting most freely when we conform to the rule. Not when we break it, right? Conform to the his the rule. moral rule, yeah. right? I mean, most people would say, "Well, what what is people would define freedom as freedom from rules?" Right. And Kant thinks that freedom is the result of self legislation, right? That when we legislate the rule to ourselves and follow it, is when we're most free. Well, I, I agree. I mean, I. I uh... so but you don't agree about the stuff about the passions and and, and well, and I agree that freedom. I mean. I agree that a common misconception or, or use of freedom that I don't subscribe to is freedom consists in doing what you want. Freedom right. consists in following your feelings. I right. think it's the opposite. I think freedom consists in reflecting on your feelings and, uh, you know, of course, Hume would at this point say, how are you going to finish that sentence, Bob? Reflecting on your feelings and what? And then deciding to do what they're not urging you will find. But ultimately, that decision that's is going to have urge. a feeling associated that's with it. That's just another urge, right? And that's true. But even Hume, I think, distinguishes between the violent passions and the calmer passions. He, he does. Has, he has feeling, like, so aesthetic uh, appreciation it, to him has higher value, like contemplating the beauty of something has higher value than raping and pillaging in accordance yes, with your feelings. Yes, he does. And it has to do with whether the, the passion that's involved is calm mm -hmm. or excited, Mm -hmm. um, 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 and that 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 does. I mean, in the treatise, he has an entire book devoted just to the passions before he even gets to the ethics. 
in the inquiry, he collapse. He removes that extra book in the passage. He collapses all that material into the uh, into the ethical treatise, into the ethical part of the uh, of the inquiries. Um, but look, I mean, his two main things about reason and passion is one: reason cannot move us; only passion can. And since ethics is a practical discipline, it's got to be governed by passion and not by reason. And the second um, has to do with the fact that values are not objective features of the world. They're subjective qualities. He gives the same treatment of values as he gives of secondary qualities like color and smell and taste, and as he gives of aesthetic properties like beauty. They are in the mind of the perceiver. They are not objective features of the world. That's a very Darwinian view. That's a very ebb view. And that's just a very scientific view, period, right? I mean, the notion that values are part of the furniture of the objective world is what J.L. Mackey, who was a contemporary moral anti-realist, would call a weird metaphysics, right? Um, um, Because think about this. To say that something is valuable is to say that it matters. But to say that something matters without it mattering to someone is a very weird thing to say. What does it mean to say that something matters independently of mattering to someone, right? Um, and so there is, a, I think, if you have anything like a scientific view of the world, this is a presumption against the notion of values being objective, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, uh, they're not like rocks, right? Maybe, I certainly... If there's, no uni- if there's no creatures in the universe to whom things matter, it's weird to say that that's a universe that has value in it. That's why most of the older objective views of value depend on God, Right? Because even if there are no creatures in the universe to whom things matter, things still matter to God, and so value still exists. But if there's nothing in the universe to which things matter, which is the condition the universe was in a billion years ago, right? Um, it's very weird to talk about there being values in it. So in other words, to say that things matter is to say that they matter to a being. Right. Mattering to, is to, a place predicate is the way I would put it. Right. right. Yeah, well, you know, you can get there that way, but 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 when I say it's Darwinian, I mean I think there's, Darwinism adds flesh to the argument in, in in the following sense. I mean, first of all, there are lots of people, including philosophers, who consider themselves very scientific in orientation, but they will argue about something like art as if one of them's right. You know, yeah. what I mean, I mean, I mean, as if there really yeah. is a right, objectively right view, right. and. Uh, and, and and that's, you just said, is probably not a very scientific way to look at it. So it happens, and, and I think the way Dar- the Darwinian, uh, I don't want to say narrative, uh, but uh, but let's say narrative. It is an account of how uh, life came, came to be where it is. Um, I think the way that adds flesh is is with examples like this. Well, one example is aesthetics, but, but let's, let's take one that's closer to ethical philosophy, like the intuition we all have that good deeds should be punished, uh, good deeds should be rewarded, and bad deeds should be punished. And it's a, it's a, when you examine it, it's not like a crude, it doesn't feel like a crude feeling. When you, when you think, ah, justice has been done, because that person who did that horrible thing to that woman has been caught and put in jail, or has been killed, or whatever, or that, that, that guy who did that wonderful altruistic thing won the lottery the next day. It's a feeling that, um, you know, it's it's a kind of a feeling that you are in touch with the moral truth. I mean, most people would say it, it's a commonly held moral intuition that this is the case. Now, uh, I think you you would say that uh, you can argue 
in an abstract sense, well, no, this is a value. And, and the value must originate with the human being. It's not like a value that's out there in the universe somewhere. It must originate with the human being. Evolutionary Darwinism now has a very plausible account of how this intuition evolved. It has a lot of detail and some empirical support about how it having to do with having to do with social animals and and, and other and other yeah I, which I mean is why, it, which is why you see proto moral behavior in, in primates and 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 things like that right, uh, right. It, it, it was a practically useful intuition in a social context uh, of, of punishment and reward. Right. And 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 so for, that, creature, for creatures that have a certain degree, I actually say of sophistication and agency, because I can point to the most social creatures in the world right. that clearly have no ethics at all. And that's insects. Right. Um, um, and so well, what do you mean does, when you say they clearly have no ethics at all? They, well, I think to speak of an ant having values is just, you know, is okay. almost almost ungrammatical. They behave altruistically, but yeah, but oh, that's that's that that's an anthropomorphism. Right. I mean, that's not. Well, no, there is a rigorous definition. I mean, altruism is something that is done that benefits another organism in the sense of uh, at, the, at your uh, expense, in the sense of increasing your chances of dying or something. There's yeah, but when we the, the ordinary use of altruistic me, it implies that the implies person it's done intentionally. Motivation. It's it's often right. <laughs> it has to do with your motivation, right? Um, 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 but no, no, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying it's not just the social animal part. It's also a certain level of of mental sophistication, right? Sure. I mean, yeah. And yeah. more specifically, the fact that we evolved in a context where people didn't just do things, they argued about them. Yeah. There were societies where people said, wait, you know, why did I hit him? Here's why I hit him. And they and it helped them to have a heartfelt rationale for why it was right to hit him. So ethical, you know, uh, what you could call ethical discourse, we believe, uh, has been going on for a long time, including during the evolution of the brain it, it, it yeah. itself, and and yeah. and that and it's and it's the fact that we evolved. Um, I mean, chimpanzees uh, do, in fact, uh, punish bad behavior and reward good behavior when it's done to them. That's right. But but uh, and there are people like Franz de Waal who have argued that they see signs of. Uh, the beginning, the rudiments of the kind of sense of justice in our sense of the term of believing that it's good that that uh, good deeds be be rewarded, but by and large, you know, I think to to get a finely articulated version of this moral intuition, you you have to uh, evolve in a context of language where uh, defending your interests linguistically and defending things that are good for you and your kin and your group or whatever actually has Darwinian value. Yeah, certainly the full blown version of it. Right. Seem to require a uh, language capacity. Um, but, you know, the primates have a rudimentary version of that as well. And so, you know, you'd expect this to be yeah. kind of like on a spectrum. But let me just push push a little bit on the notion. Look, um, it is true that Hume thinks that um, moral values are subjective in the sense that they are uh, uh, a perceiver dependent, right, or valuer dependent. Mm -hmm. Um but he also believes that there is normativity, that there are oughts, that there are moral oughts. Okay, so how does he get there? Okay, so let me explain how he gets there. And this is, this is a, a common strategy, again, that he employs across the various subjective properties. So let me start with a very easy case. So in the case of color perception, um, if, you see, if, if you tell me that a stop sign is blue, there's a very straightforward sense in which I can say not only that you are wrong, 
but that you ought to see it as red. And the sense of ought there that's at work is in terms of what we would call a competent perceiver or a competent mm-hmm. judge, mm-hmm. right? Um, the reason why you're seeing blue is because you are in some way physiologically defective, right? Mm-hmm. And this doesn't have any sort of moral connotation. This is simply uh, a statistical judgment. If most people saw stop signs as blue, that would be the norm, right? So, so I don't want to get anybody to get all worked up about this, that I'm you know, uh, you know, saying that people with disabilities are defective in some moral sense. In a purely statistical sense, otherwise we wouldn't call it a disability, all right? Um, Hume thinks that this can be carried over. So in the case of aesthetic value, Hume has a paper called uh, uh, um, uh, Of the Standard of Taste, which I just taught in my aesthetics class. And what Hume says there is that beauty is a subjective property, but that there are better and worse judges of beauty. Now, in the such that we can judge. So, if someone was to say, "Britney Spears is better than Mozart," Hume would say, "There's a very straightforward sense in which that's wrong, and in which we could say to them, you ought to think that Mozart is better than Britney Spears.' And the ground on which you ought to think that is that that is what a competent judge of music would say." Okay, and Hume's account of competence in the case of 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 aesthetics is roughly by appeal to certain credentials, uh, experience, sensitivity, da 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 whether you accept it or not, whatever. I'm just telling you the form of mm-hmm. this reply. With regard to ethics, it's a lot more like the answer with respect to color perception. Hume thinks that there is a human nature, right? He thinks that the normal human being is fundamentally sympathetic. This he scares, shares with a lot of the other Scottish moralists, Fundamentally like sympathetic, meaning... That our natural instinct is one of sympathy uh, to others, right? That, that, now, that sympathy um, diminishes as the other is farther and farther away from us, both in relation and in space and time, right? So I naturally am going to be, care more about my sister than about a total stranger. I'm naturally going to care more about somebody right in front of me than somebody on the other side of the planet. Um, and he the, thinks and that, the way it actually works is sympathy also diminishes to the extent that someone has a conflicting interest with yours. If it's That's your right. rival for a mate or something, right. you're not very sympathetic. Notice that those are all types of distance from you. Okay. Right? Those are all types of distance from you. But Hume, Hume like many of the Scottish moralists, um, and I'm thinking of Hutchison in particular, um, generally think that human nature normally is sympathetic and benevolent. Mm-hmm. And so for Hume, somebody who has malicious sentiments and engages in uh, malicious behavior. Yes, good and bad are subjective properties, right? But we can still say that they're wrong and that they ought to act otherwise because we can appeal to what a normal human being would do. So they're not conforming to human nature when they do That's that. right. That's well, right. here evolutionary psychology would say he's just flat out wrong. We are, in fact, designed to be antagonistic to people depending on how right. we consciously or unconsciously perceive them in relation to our interests. But I did not say that his account of normativity in ethics is 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 compelling. I'm just simply saying he look. If a characteristic is subjective, then the only way you can preserve normativity is by some account of competent judge. Right. That's the mm-hmm. only way because you can't point to an objective fact because mm-hmm. there is none. Right. So the only thing you could say is that someone is a better or worse judger of something. Mm-hmm. If you want to preserve that ought, that ability to, to mm-hmm. use the ought. Um, 
Now, to the extent to which Hume is wrong about human nature, that option is, that option is lost to him, and he doesn't have, then, a compelling account of normativity and ethics. Yeah. I just simply wanted to give you, say, he does not, his subjectivism does not lead to a um, anti-normativism. Right. Yeah, that's a little bit ironic to me. I, I wonder if he was, you know, he was very uh, bold in being basically an atheist in his time, and maybe it was just going a little too far. We're not sure to about be a, he was an atheist or a deist. It's not entirely okay. Yeah. yeah, and in fact, I mean, that's another interesting thing about we, we should get to the question of, of design that he uh, touched on a little. I just discovered by, you know, doing my little uh, quick online uh, research on him. Um but uh, I wonder, I mean, it does seem to me like he's kind of straining against the point he himself has made about reason and the passions when he asserts that, yes, we can preserve uh, notions of, of moral value. And I just wonder if he had lived at a time when utilitarianism were better developed. I don't know what stage it was in. I mean, Bentham hadn't even started. Uh, Bentham wasn't, wasn't even, Bentham's father wasn't even around, right? So if he had lived in the, at the end of the 19th century, I wonder if he would have found, you know, uh, consequentialism and more specifically utilitarianism kind of appeal. It seems to me a more natural fit. Well, subst- substantively, he is sometimes called a utilitarian. Yeah, well, that seems natural to me. Substantively, his views align with the utilitarians. Yeah. Um, uh, but the arguments are not done in that way. The value theory is not done in that way. But the substance of what the ethics consists of is roughly speaking utilitarian, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. The The thing I was just going to say about design, I came across a thing where, where he said, you know, there were, in, in the century in which he lived, arguments for God from design, some were famous. I mean, this is when uh, William Paley wrote his uh, work on natural theology, I think, and, you know, famously said, look, organisms are different from rocks. I mean, organisms are more like pocket watches in terms of intricacy yeah, and function. Yeah. And we know that pocket watches have a designer, so organisms must have. Hume did not contest that, which is actually, interestingly, even Richard Dawkins doesn't contest that. I mean, Dawkins says, yeah, animals were designed just not by God. They were designed by natural selection. And Hume, in a way, says something kind of analogous. He says, like, he says, okay, it's one thing to infer design." But you have to be careful in what you can infer about the designer. Right. So, you know, so even if you uh, if you accept that, okay, an animal must have been designed by something pretty smart, that doesn't mean we're talking about the God of Christianity or something, and that which was the kind of of, right. uh, of step that Paley wanted to take. Well, look, the design arguments never ever got you beyond anything like a rudimentary deism. I mean, I mean that that's the reason why. You know, I think in every single debate I ever saw Hitchens do with theists, he would always sort of, you know, especially with William Lane Craig, who would constantly trot out these cosmological arguments. Hitchens would always say, great, even if I grant you all of that, all your work is still ahead of you. Right. Um, Because that doesn't get you even close to some anthropomorphic giant man in the sky who talked to the Hebrews and, you know, sent his, you know, sent, sent his son down to get to get crucified and all of that. Um, um, the, the notion that, you know, and in that sense, the medieval theologians, I think, were a lot smarter than the contemporary ones. I mean, Aqu- Thomas Aquinas knew perfectly well that that by itself didn't get you Jesus of Nazareth, right, and and all of the rest. Um, um, 
Um, and even Anselm, much earlier, I think, probably uh, wouldn't have fallen prey to that sort of mistake. Um, um, right. I, I, I'm, I'm probably not even as, as inclined as Dawkins to even ascribe desi- to subscribe design, even in the minimal sense. But you know, you and I have argued about that also. So that's no. Well, no that's reason, a question of language. No reason to bore people with that again. No, I mean it's a question. I think just think it's a question of language. I mean, natural selection clearly. The creative process of natural selection is very different from the creative process that created a rock, and it leads to the sort of uh, functional integration yeah. uh, that and, and teleological behavior on the part of the organisms, goal-seeking behavior on the part of the organisms that in other contexts we do associate with design. But whether you want to use the term, uh, as some people do, or use it in quotes or whatever, that doesn't really... Uh, yeah, it doesn't matter that matter much. To me. You, you're, you're not employing it to make theistic arguments, and so. Well, no, I do. One thing I do think is, uh, is, and this is uh, what's. It, it's interesting. I mean, I do think that natural selection itself. If you just look at the entire history of evolution on this planet, I think we've talked about this. It has, if you just step back, if you can extract yourself enough to really look at what it would look like to just observe natural selection and time lapse, if you didn't know anything about it, you just saw it proceed on this planet, and all of a sudden you're where we are. I mean, it, it generate first it triggers cultural evolution in humans. You get to where we are. You just start to, this planetary brain seems to be emerging in the form of the internet. You know, I think an observer would go, whoa, that's kind of, A, it's amazing. B, it's kind of like, um, it, it has something in common with the way an organism develops. So I think you could believe that natural selection, and again, I mean natural selection, nothing spooky, not intelligent design, just nuts and bolts natural selection. You could argue that that may have been in set, set in motion in some sense uh, to reach a goal, achieve a purpose. And so in that sense, there may be purpose. Now, what's, what's interesting here is, as you note, that doesn't mean it, it. That doesn't get you an interventionist god. In fact, I mean, it might get you a deistic god. I, the truth is, it doesn't even necessarily get you that. I won't elaborate. But right. but what's interesting to me is even though uh, granting hypothetically some sort of purpose to natural selection doesn't get you any very precise place theologically, it totally freaks almost everyone out. Who consider in the in the modern kind of scientific community, they just don't yeah. want to hear well, it, they and, and they refuse to entertain. They refuse yeah. to listen. They literally refuse to listen to the argument. Right, because they immediately leap to the theistic conclusion, and they assume that that's what this is about. And I mean, my reaction to it is very different. Different. I mean, uh, to me, these are you know, in a sense, what we talked about last time, Didion-esque stories. Yeah. You know, to me, the key is when you say if an observer, and my, my what I would want to say, an observer like us were to look at this, they would say, oh, wow, this is really... But to me, that says everything about the observer and nothing at all about the thing being observed. Well, okay. Um, but, but that's my, our difference. I mean, that's the... Okay, you know, but, but I would just point out that the argument I'm making, the, the logic of that argument, is the logic held by Dawkins in the book The Blind Watchmaker. Yeah, he doesn't apply it to natural selection, yeah. but it's exactly the same logic, and he's exactly the kind of purpose person who would be totally freaked out if you took his own logic and just yeah. and just changed yeah. the context. And I'm just I, saying right. I'm just saying that a lot of people who's who now make a living by preaching the virtues of reason yeah. and dismissing religious people as irrational themselves when they sense some argument is threatening are just as irrational and closed-minded. Oh, that's absolutely true. true. I, I, I loved, um, 
on the old meaning of life site, the original one. Uh, you got Dan Dennett to admit this. Well, uh, he says he didn't, but I, I watched won't get into it. That. He explicitly admitted it. I uh, watched. Well, my okay. view is what he said adds up to it on video. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I, I, you know, I, I think. I mean, he just twisted himself in this in the ensuing email exchange, which is he, online. You can find he him twisted himself. He just twisted himself in knots. It just right. made no sense what he was saying. Once I pointed out to him that that what he said was tantamount to acknowledging that there is at least some evidence that evolution has purpose, he totally freaked out. He heard from his flock of admirers that he had committed heresy, and the ensuing email exchange, and you know, there will be commenters who scream at me for being a yeah. jerk. Go read the damn thing. Read no, it I, carefully. I read it. It and makes you know, no sense. And I'm not friendly to your view on this. I know. I read it, and I watched it, and he said yes. when you, you I flat out asked him, and he said yes. Well, In that sense, he said yes. Yeah, well, there's a little uh, bit of, I mean, you have to, he said yes to two things. And I didn't do a good enough job in the interview of saying, you realize what this adds up to. But but anyway, that's all laid out. If you right. go, we can link to that and we can link to the email exchange. I really... The worst thing that ever happened to Dennett was becoming a public intellectual. That was the worst thing. <laughs> and especially becoming one of the four, four horsemen. In my opinion, he hasn't written a really good book since Brainstorms. But, um, in, but his, the, in his defense, I'll say he does not have some of the properties of the other four horsemen. That he's not ob- he's not as obnoxious because he's still too classy of a guy, right? And too much of an intellectual to go that and, far. And he understands that even if you consider, uh, you know, like as many people naturally do, like uh, you know, freelance jihadism a big problem. He understands. That probably going around saying, don't you Muslims understand that God doesn't exist, is not a very productive, it's not the way to solve the problem. <laughs> so listen, you want to do quickly on, um, on the self? Because yeah, that was just quickly. That, I, I yeah. just want to quote a little humor. Now, this, is not, uh, uh, this has been noted by other people. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, in Buddhism, there is this doctrine of uh, the, self, the self doesn't exist. Uh, and Hume says, I will read quotes from Hume, something sounds just remarkably, not, not just like the assertion itself doesn't exist, but the very logic of it is just so Buddhist. And this led, you know, Alison Gopnik, who I guess is a philosopher, is she at Berkeley or something? Do you know that name? Say um, Alison Gopnik? Don't know. Gopnik. Gopnik. Yes. And she wrote, uh, she got really interested in this and went and researched the possibility, she wrote about this in The Atlantic and has maybe written about it subsequently, the possibility that maybe Hume had contact with Buddhist texts. And she actually made the case that in a library, I think that in a library... He was a librarian in Edinburgh. I would think that, you know, he certainly would have had access. I think she established that in some library Hume had access to, there was some a work that had been either done or brought to England by a Jesuit, brought to, brought to Britain by a Jesuit, had stuff that Hume could have been exposed to. It's totally conjectural. But anyway, here's what Hume says. Um, There's two things. A couple of parts of the Buddhist argument. One is that the self does not remain continuous through time. I am very different from the me I was when I was 12 and even from the me I was yesterday. There's nothing that persists forever. uh, forever. And, And Hume says, quote, if any impression gives rise to the idea of self, that impression must continue invariably the same through the whole course of our lives since self is supposed to exist after that manner. In other words, since self is supposed to be some essence that supposedly preserves forever. And then he writes, but there is no impression 
constant and variable. He's talking about perceptions and so on. There is no impression, constant and variable. Pain and pleasure, grief and joy, passions and sensations succeed each other and never all exist at the same time. It can never, therefore, be from any of these impressions or from any other that the idea of self is derived. And consequently, there is no such idea. Then he also says, uh, another another way the Buddhists break it down is like, at any given moment, if you look at the thing you call yourself, it can just consists of a a bunch of different things going Which on. Which calls a bundle of perceptions. Right. right? He, he yeah. writes, for my part, when I enter most intimately yeah. in what I call myself, I always stumble on some particular perception or other of heat or cold, light or shade, love or hatred, pain or pleasure. I never can catch myself at any time without a perception and never can observe anything but the perception. Yeah. Uh, then later he says, uh, these perceptions and other things... Well, he says, people in general are, quote, they are nothing but a bundle or collection of different perceptions which succeed each other with an inconceivable rapidity and are in a perpetual flux and movement. And, you know, part of the meditative practice is like apprehending that and and getting enough removed from your normal state of mind that that's actually the way it looks to you. And and so, anyway, he gets a lot of credit for this. If we had more time, I would argue that, um, I mean, whether he's right or wrong, he gets credit because there's a whole... Uh, you know, a whole significant Eastern philosophy, plausibly at least, making a comparable argument, and and for Hume it was just another another week of work to come up with. I mean, right. you know, I mean <laughs> the, well, the, but the and Eastern the Eastern thinkers that you're talking about, they make a lot of that. In other words, that then becomes a oh. basis for which to do a lot of work. Oh yeah, Hume for Hume, this is just one of the things he's skeptical about, right? That's yeah, he is a thoroughgoing skeptic. That's that's right, and. And and look, I mean, I always thought the idea of a self as a thing was very odd, just as I have always thought that the notion of a mind as a thing is very odd. Um, um, you know, there's not there's even a connection you could say in a small way to the existentialists. Um, so I'm thinking something like Sartre's Transcendence of the Ego, where Sartre says that the self is posterior to consciousness, not prior to it, right? Um, that the self is a kind of a summer, summary or a summation of this bundle. Um, and I think, I think in that sense, you know, the best version you're going to give of it is something like John Locke's, right? That self, that, 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 that personhood or selfhood um, is the result of a sort of a certain continuity of consciousness over time, mm-hmm. right? Um, that which one could at least in principle remember. Um, um, that, that train is the arc of yourself, but Locke famously is completely agnostic about whether that indicates any sort of substance or whether that indicates any sort of non-physical entity as Descartes thought it did. Um, and I think that the inclination towards this sort of thinking is partly an artifact of language that we have the word I, right, mm-hmm. um, and the word you, um, and also is an artifact of a very old way of thinking that goes all the way back to ancient philosophy that attributes have to inhere in substances, right? Right. That, that, that you can't have characteristics without a kind of a, a bin for them to sit in, right? Um, um, and I think that, that it also has a heritage in that, right? That, yeah, but I, think, but I think to attribute self to some series of philosophical development, the, 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 the notion that there is a self to some series of philosophical well, development... Well, not that there's a self, but that it's a thing, that it's a... Well, okay, but but this is just an intuition of human beings. People have never heard of philosophy and people living to that. I mean, if you take the average person and try to explain to them the Buddhist doctrine of non-self, they say, are you crazy? Of course I exist. Of course 
there's this thing right. that's me. It seems to be a but these are modern human. But these are modern people. We can't ask people from ten thousand years ago what they thought about the self. We have no idea. And actually, there's a pretty strong view that you find uh, in several disciplines that the notion of the self as an enduring, individual, discrete subject is a quintessentially modern notion that you don't even have it in antiquity, really. Right. Um, and so I'm not so sure that if well, you ask but, somebody but I will say that, 5,000 years ago if they would answer that way. Well, but we have plenty of accounts of anthropologists who happen upon societies that are not literate and hunter-gatherer societies that had little or in some cases no, so far as we know, Western contact or contact with more uh, technologically advanced societies. And I mean, I don't know. I, I, uh, I don't know of like a work that devoted to this particular point. But you can bet these people say things like, well, I did this when I was 12. And you are to blame for this thing you did 10 years ago. Right, but that, that, that doesn't tell us anything about well, how but it tells you understand that. But the fact that that is, the, uh, I think, a deeply human tendency, uh, and, and a lot of this I think you can argue for in terms of evolutionary psychology, why do we have certain intuitions about the self and a strong sense of volition and so on? I think a lot of it you can argue that that, conception of the quote self is itself an adaptation but in any event i'm saying if if you ask uh why is why is the notion of a self appealing when people state it as an abstract proposition i think it's because it's deeply a part of human nature to be talking like that and thinking like that from the beginning about yourself and about others Hmm. that i'd have to be i'd have to express some skepticism about because i'm not sure that we correctly interpret with things people that say people that things say in antiquity, I don't know that I think that we don't interpret them very much through a modern lens. I don't know that that's how they understood it. I think that the knowledge we have of that of those times is very sketchy, precisely because even history wasn't done then in the way that we do it now. And I'm very dubious of anthropological efforts to use contemporary so-called primitives um, to sort of, to sort of uh, uh, inf- make inferences about prehistoric... Well, these are certainly of- people who have not been influenced by Western philosophy. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, th- no, uh, that's I mean, sure. when, when, when they happened upon the Polynesians, they were not people who had been influenced by, by Plato's lineage. But even the translations of the languages, if you know anything about the difficulties and problems in translation... Sure are wildly overstated when they're transmitted in the popular sort of media. Um, um, And so I'd be very cautious. But, of course, in addition to that, I mean, I I naturally talk about this, you know, uh, observed hunter-gatherer societies. Polynesians weren't. They were agrarian. But anyway, observed, uh, uh, you know, kind of non-literate societies. uh, Because uh, because figuring out what the environment of hunter-gatherers, the hunter-gatherer environment might have been like, 30,000 years ago is important evolutionary psychology. You kind of do the best you can. You look at the examples you have. But for purposes of our argument, this discussion right now, I think it's enough to go look at uh, pre-Platonic, pre-Greek, you know, uh, literature in the Middle East where, you know, Hammurabi probably, I would guess, boasts about various things that he did and I, I think, you yeah, but that fun- does not mean that he understands him, what he is in the same way that a modern Cartesian does. No, right? not exactly. But uh, and I'm not talking about the mind-body problem. I'm talking about a strong sense of identity and responsibility for your identity of an enduring, underlying, right. existing right. 
separate substance yeah. subject of experience that's distinct from the experiences. I don't know that that, that well, no, I'm not saying well anybody put it like that, but I'm but saying that's what we need. Yeah, but I'm saying if you find things that I suspect there is evidence of back there, such as <clears throat> you are responsible, you deserve to die for something you did five years ago, and yeah. so on. If you even find this intuition of continuity, of moral responsibility, well, right there, <clears throat> that's naturally suggests some sense of enduring essence, right? Uh, maybe, although I, I have I to say that a lot, of the, a lot of the responsibility was corporate. You didn't only deserve to die. Your kids deserve to die. Your wife deserved to die. Your holdings deserve to be destroyed. I mean, whole generations deserve to go. Right? I mean, I don't know that I think that you can make those kinds of straightforward inferences from the fact that people spoke the language of responsibility as we interpret it that they understood, therefore, they believed in an enduring subject of experience in the way that we that, think of it. That's not what I'm saying. That's not here. what I'm saying. I'm saying that the way we naturally think about identity and volition and responsibility and so on. I, I'm saying, and I don't have time to flesh this part out. Um, I mean, I do this in a book of mine that's going to come out in about uh, nine months or something on Buddhism. But uh, Well, we'll have to do a show on that then. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure people... Uh, feel they can wait for that but um <laughs> the the uh i'm just saying that uh the kinds of intuitions that i think are built into humans by natural selection about responsibility and yeah. identity and volition and so on are very conducive to the eventual philosophical argu articulation of a notion of self maybe um I, I, look i can't categorically disagree i we, you and I have a, have a very, you are much more inclined to look to evolutionary accounts, and I am much more cautious because I am much more inclined to ascribe things to irreducible dimensions of culture, um, and so and so that's just a difference that, that's so fundamental that we would have to really have like a very deep methodological. Well, culture's important to me because remember I believe in a universal human nature, and yet. Uh, yeah. You look around and different places are very different in their customs and so on. So there's a lot of, if you believe in a universal human nature, as I do, and yet concede the obvious variation yeah. in human custom and experience and law and so on, you have to believe culture matters. So I do. Yeah, you do. And, you and, and if you, as you want to do, provide a very, give evolution a very prominent role in explaining those kinds of things, then you have to be able to sort of talk about the evolutionary grounds of culture, which is what you try to do. Right. Um, um, I just think at the current point, it's very, very sketchy, has a very dang big danger. I'm not accusing you of this, but a danger of being glib and falling into just so stories. Um, and so I'm not seeing yet anything. I'm not seeing stuff there that compels me to sort of move away from my very anti-reductionist stance on this, but that doesn't mean it wouldn't couldn't change. I mean, it certainly could. No, there so. is. There, I, we agree that there is hope for you. <laughs> so we, well, at least somebody thinks so. We end, we end on a note of concord. <laughs> You're not irredeemably confused. Irredeemably hopeless. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Bob. Yeah, this was fun. Uh, we could have gone uh, in a I lot of directions. Covered, we covered a lot of stuff. We yeah. got through some good hume, and I think people got a good sense of it and uh, we managed to tie it to a lot of other things that are interesting so um 
So stay tuned. Uh, we'll probably do another philosopher sometime that you're interested yep. in at some point. Could well happen. Thank you, Dan. We'll see Thank you. Thank you, we'll Bob. You Take care. Okay. Thanks for listening to Meaning of Life TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Meaning of Life episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at meaningoflife.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.